Baskin's emerging tech and venture capital practice is comprised of 80-plus dedicated legal professionals across the Canadian market. We're deeply involved in the startup ecosystem and have worked closely with founders from startup to scale to exit. Our team is a leading Canadian law firm for VC financings and tech M&A and act for many of the best-in-class startup and scale-up innovation-based companies and entrepreneurs in Canada. Given this experience, we understand market trends and can assist in guiding your company forward as you scale. We take a holistic and strategic approach to helping our clients achieve their goals and provide the full suite of services including corporate, corporate finance, M&A, commercial, IP, data and compliance, employment, tax and beyond. We are excited to help the next generation of unicorns. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Lisa Matam. Lisa is the founder and CEO of Sahajan. Sahajan blends the power of Ayurveda integral part of Lisa's South Indian heritage with clinical science to create clean skincare products. In this episode, we discuss what clean beauty means, how to start a skincare brand from ideation, manufacturing, and distribution, launching with one product versus launching a collection on day one, their three-year, 200,000 hotel room global deal with JW Marriott for the Ritz-Carlton, Marriott, St. Regis, and W Hotel properties, and why these partnerships are so powerful. Marketing strategy from micro-influencers to large publishers like L, Designing a price strategy. Post-purchase customer experience and how to design it. Going from eight years of bootstrapping to raising a round and how that changes things. Please enjoy my conversation with Lisa Matam. Lisa, I'd like to start with your time as a, a product manager at a pharmaceutical company. How did that give you an edge starting a, a skincare brand? So I'll take you back a, a, a little bit in time. Um, so post-MBA, I worked in pharma. I had an undergrad in science and an MBA. So it seemed like the perfect marriage of my background. So I worked um, in specialty biotech and then um, in, in a number of different areas. And then my last role that you're talking about is was with J&J. How it helped me, I think it's like, it's almost hard to describe because, you know, a lot of startup founders, you know, jump in from school to, to founding brands. Whereas I often say to people, it's really great to work in a big corporation because you can see all the functions and you actually learn how to work in a lot of ways because you have to work in a large organization. So very fundamentally, I think from a work perspective, it had shaped me who I was as as a worker, as a leader, you know, I was able to grow through the organization. So there was like some fundamentals that I think were critical to my journey, but specifically because I have a skincare brand that's heavily based in science, um, the rigor of my pharmaceutical background really helped me because, you know, Sahajan was really, is founded, is founded because I was looking for something that was clean a number of years ago. 
And I wondered like, why had it taken me so long to get here? Why hadn't I, you know, tried using clean beauty before? And it was because I wanted results. And so, you know, I wanted to like, whether like look younger or less tired or less acne or whatever it is, the reason that we buy skincare. And I was like, oh, clean beauty hasn't done this. It really just focuses on being clean and it really just focuses on being good for you. And so we need to show people results and results is all we do in pharma. And we do it in a very pragmatic, diligent way, which is also something I didn't see in, in cosmetics. Like if I said that this ingredient had the ability to stimulate the production of collagen, I made sure that that was research first. So I think having worked in corporate, having worked in pharma, having grown a career in pharma gave me so many vantage points that really applied to everything from how I structured the business, how I lead my team, but to specifically how we formulate, how we claim and how we market. What does that concept of, of clean beauty mean from like a product standpoint? Is this like kind of a newer trend that people are focusing on with, you know, understanding all the products that are in their skincare, maybe similar to like food, if you drew a comparison to that? Is that, uh, is that accurate? That's accurate. And the, and the word is evolving. There are no regulations specifically in Canada and the U.S. on what defines clean and natural, certainly for organic. Um, and so when I started, we looked to the EU guidelines for what was considered a natural product to fundamentally formulate. But it's really based off of this premise that, you know, we have a large understanding now that we have this, we have an unnecessary, I'm going to say unnecessary because I am a big believer in, you know, sometimes we need pharmaceuticals and sometimes we need medical grade products. But there is an unnecessary amount of chemicals, toxins, that we're taking into our body that we just don't need. And I, and I, and that, you know, with some, again, some rigor can be formulated better and can do better. And so people are starting to ask them, themselves, you know, the skin is the largest organ on your body. If you kind of think of it as like what, you know, what I put on my skin, I put into my body. People are starting to ask themselves, like, what do I really want to put on my skin? And this, you know, started a number of years ago. And when I first started clean or natural, whatever you want to call it, green beauty was something of a health food store. And now as a trend, it's exploded. It's the fastest growing trend in the beauty segment. And we see it at mass retailers like Sephora, like Ulta, like Shopper. Where did the main idea for the brand came from? You talk about kind of clean beauty and that focus there, the pharmaceutical background. But really, what was the, the, the driving force behind starting your own brand? And when you started, uh, did you start with like one product? Did you have multiple products? I'm very curious about that. I started my career, as you know, in pharma, and then I was a consultant for a number of years. And so I never thought that I would, I never thought I'd be a beauty founder. I never even thought I'd be in the beauty industry. And when I was pregnant with my second child, I came home and my daughter had been playing with care. She had it all over her face, you know, really thick the way that kids play with things. And I remember thinking, like quite instantly a number of things like beyond just thinking that she was cute and beyond like thinking like, oh, my gosh, you just like wasted a million dollars. I remember thinking, gosh, what is that? What, are, what is my skincare going to do to your young, beautiful skin? Because I was a lot more mindful of what I was feeding her, you know, what I was putting on her skin. But also I recognized that in that moment, everything that I bought, like I was the first one again to the store to be like, you know, what have you got that's like anti-wrinkle turned back the hands of time and so I said to her like you can't play with these things if you want to play with things these are the things you should play with and they were these bottles that my parents had brought back on a recent trip from India 
And it was in that moment that I said to myself, okay, if my skincare isn't good enough for her, then it certainly isn't good enough for me. And if this, if these little bottles contain things that on gut instinct, I truly believe in, I need to go back there. And so it sent me on a journey, uh, one, to understand that what I believe to be family tradition, what I believe to be something that my, you know, my parents did, whether it's like putting turmeric pimple or oiling my hair, was steeped not just in family tradition, but was steeped in this ancient science that's Ayurveda. It's the wellness science of India. And then, as I mentioned earlier, as I was going through this, I was like, how did it take me so long to get here? Like I was a fitness instructor through school. I was an early adopter, you know, to yoga. I, for the most part, try and live not perfect. I, I love my, uh, my treats, but, you know, I try and live a life of wellness. And so why had it taken me so long to get here? And it was because when I buy these products, I buy them for results first. And so I was like, I can take this old world science that I fundamentally believe in. I intuitively know to be true that have these like old world high performing ingredients, but I can show people that they work and I can use my pharma background to do that. I can use the diligence of pharma that I wasn't seeing at the time, certainly in clean and wasn't even being used like a ton in cosmetics. And I can use that rigor to show people that this could stand, you know, clean, clean with the right backing, with the right, you know, fundamental foundation, which is Ayurveda can outperform or at least, you know, match any conventional. How did you go about even just kind of creating a product? I'm always curious about that, especially in kind of a skincare brand space. Um, did you kind of create samples yourself? Did you have to find a manufacturer kind of day one? How does that process work? Do you need to go through testing? Um, yeah, I'm just kind of curious about how all that initially started. To it's funny. I don't often recommend now, you know, beauty founders will reach out and say like, should, should I do what you did? And I often will say no, because I took a very pragmatic approach to doing this. I'm not a chemist by background. Um, I went through, you know, having come from pharma, I ended up working with a formulation chemist who was formerly with GlaxoSmithKline and said to him like, you know, will you help me? So I worked with like a bunch of pharma people until so we rented, you know, lab the bench. We, we were on the bench. Like we, we rented a lab space. We ordered ingredients. He formulated at the bench. Um, we created samples, you know, we iterated, we worked with two Ayurvedic doctors in India on the formulas. And so this is like in a pre zoom world. And so we would have these emails back and forth um, because I just had a baby. So I wasn't going to get on a plane to India. And so, you know, we would be like, okay, we want to create, you know, a serum that's going to bring hydration, but it's really going to bring like radiance back into the skin. We want it to help people who have fine lines and have And so they would tell us what ingredients and we would formulate here. Um, and, and then once it was at a place where I felt good about it, I then gave it to 25 people to try. And I asked them to fill out some surveys and stuff, which again is not typically done. <laughs> I've learned, um, you know, people, you know, you know, sort of the startup, like let's get our, you know, the right word, like our best possible product out as quickly as possible. But I went and I asked a bunch of people for feedback, which was helpful because I wanted to know their perspective. And then we had to go find a manufacturer. And so that in and of itself was a process because in a very technical way, it's actually a little bit of like tech transfer because you are taking a formula that we made, you know, with like spoons and very like, you know, rudimentary steps and now saying you have to scale this up. And so finding the manufacturer was extremely difficult. And then getting our formulas in a robust place, you know, was a process. 
And then before you could launch, we did a number of tests. So we did, you know, micro testing because we wanted to make sure that there was no, you know, mold or bacteria that was going to form where people are constantly putting their fingers in their skincare. And so you're introducing new things into that jar every day. Uh, we did stability testing because we wanted to make sure if it's going to sit on the shelf that it, you know, sometimes, and you've probably seen it, sometimes you open a jar, there's a little bit of oil at the side or there's a little bit, you know, it seems like the emulsion is broken. So we did all of those things. And that's, I, to your earlier question again, where my pharma really helped me because I started with like, we have to have all of these things. Um, and later in my journey, like some of our retailers made that um, a requirement, but we had had it since the beginning. So it was, a, it was a process. It was definitely a process. What do you think about like the number of products when you launch? Like how many products did you have when you launch? Like, uh, is, is it better just to focus on one singular product and make that amazing and incredible? Or is there a perception from potential customers or retailers that, hey, this is only one product, like this isn't like a brand? I guess, like, what is some of the thought process there? Is there a right or wrong way? Or is it just kind of whatever works best? I think it really matters. I think it matters, one, what your point of differentiation is. And I think, two, it matters in terms of what it is that you're trying to create and what you have the financial capacity to do. So we launched with a collection. We launched with five products. But what that meant is for me in the first two years, we didn't add on an additional product because we were still growing. We were still planting seeds. We were still getting people on board. Um, but it gave me the ability to, as I felt, was to really exemplify Ayurveda at its best. And so we had a hair oil and we had a body oil, which is unusual when you launch a skincare line. You usually launch with like a cleanser and all of those things. But we had a serum, we had an eye cream and, and a face cream. But I actually went with the oils because in Ayurveda, fundamentally, oiling is so important. I believe there's no greater act of self-care than anointing oneself with oils. And so to me, it spoke to the breadth that this could become. It gave people multiple entry points. If you are already in love with your serum, but you're like, oh, I've got dark circles in my eyes, it gives you multiple points to try the brand. So for us, that was really important. Where I've seen brands be really successful launching one product in the beauty space, it would be because that product has some like exceptional hero quality. So maybe it's a hero ingredient that you don't see. And it's like, we have discovered the one ingredient that's really going to help you with hyperpigmentation. And we've studied it and we've done it and we realize that nobody else has it. So that's the reason we're pushing it out. Or it's got some sort of like unique tool property. There's something, if you're a beauty junkie, a lot of people would know something called a beauty blender, which is like this like very uniquely shaped sponge. And I have been told, and so don't quote me exactly on this, but that brand was like a one tool brand for a long period of time because it was so unique. And so, you know, their opportunity was just to get more and more people into it um, because they they had, I mean, every, everybody ideally has some white space, but they had like really solid white space where they could say, okay, you know, this is the one thing we want to get into everybody's hands. So you originally started this in 2015. I'm curious what things were like at that time from like an e-commerce standpoint, like, you know, 2023 is it's obvious, like load up a, a Shopify site, release everything. You know, there's a lot of different tools now. What were things like in 2015? Obviously, Shopify was around then. But, you know, what was that learning curve on the kind of maybe e-commerce side of things? It was an interesting learning curve for me because, you know, we launched you know, I didn't come from this world. I didn't have a lot of advisors. You know, I was kind of doing things based on like reading and and seeing what made sense. 
I thought about a Shopify store. It's interesting. I didn't launch with a Shopify store because I shot. I thought about one. I reached out to, at the time, Shopify wouldn't love this, but I reached out to, they had a list of like preferred vendors. And I reached out to three of them and they all recommended at the time that I don't do a Shopify store. So I was like, okay, if all three of them don't think I should be using Shopify, maybe they're right. Um, so my first site was not Shopify. And then, you know, over a year later, I switched into a Shopify store and would never look back. Um, so I think that they led me astray, but obviously Shopify was evolving too at the time. So I think, you know, some of the added features, the apps, all the things that, that are there right now weren't necessarily available. But it was an interesting time, I think, in Canadian retail and Canadian e-commerce because, you know, Canadians were slower to e-com, I think. And I am even of myself, I, you know, I'm an early adapter on some things, but a Luddite on others. And I wasn't shopping online. But I remember that I we did a press event as part of our launch work and our launch initiatives. And I remember having a prominent beauty editor in Canada come to me and say, look, well, where are you sold? And I said, well, we're, we have a website. And she, she was like, oh, so nowhere. And I was like, well, no, like we have a website. And she was like, well, yeah, but I'll cover you when you're sold somewhere. And so that was, and that was one person, but that was a prevailing theme that I felt in those early days. And I remember going like, okay, I guess I have to go get some retailers. And so I quite quickly, while we had a site focused on some early retail partners, and pre-pandemic, we were a retail first business. Um, we still had our online sales and we we did all of those things. Um, and we were, you know, playing with performance marketing and a number of things. But um, we started with that digital first lens because it, it it was almost as though the market was pushing us in that direction for validation. For, I think it was a combo of validation and, and yeah, it was just like how people, I think we were still in the early days. I think if I had, I remember prior to launch saying to my advisor at the time, do you think I should launch in the US? And he said to me, what does that look like? And I said, I don't know. I just like, like I said, like I meant like the US first, whereas we were kind of like, you know, the site was available on both sides of the border, but with less of a Canadian focus and more of a US focus. And he was like, no, let's, you know, like get our, get our feet wet in Canada and learn. But one thing I do think had I, is that the US was further along in the DTC world and that that may have positively or negatively, who knows? impacted our trajectory and the way we approached e-commerce. I'd love to dive into that a little bit more, like with the like the focus on Canada versus, you know, focusing on the U.S. and Canada at the same time. Do you think there are nuances? Like obviously there's regulatory and a different retailer environment and everything, but is there just, do you find there's even a difference between like a consumer side of things? As a brand that that operates on both sides of the border, I think there's I think there's a few elements to it. Like one thing that I'm really proud of is that we continue to be made in Canada. You know, our boxes are printed here. We work with two labs, one in Ontario, one in Quebec. And so I feel that we do have a customer that really rallies behind us as a Canadian brand. So I do think from a heart-centered perspective, Canadians rally around Canadian brand. Um, I think fundamentally what's different is, you know, you're dealing with a population size U.S. to Canada. You know, U.S. Is, their population is 10 times our size. So in one sense, you look at if this is what I can accomplish in Canada, I should be able to do, you know, I should be able to do 10 times more in the U.S. just by translating certain things. But I also think costs, you know, the cost of acquisition is higher. There's more noise in the U.S. There's more brands in the U.S. 
So I, I think that strategically some things are different in the way that you approach them. Some things are agnostic, like an influencer is an influencer, whether or not, you know, they may have their demographics skew heavily to one jurisdiction, but typically if somebody is big in the U.S., they also have a Canadian following. And so there's a lot of things that you can do that can impact both sides of the border. One interesting, you know, takeaway I have is, is um, in our first year of business, I had the opportunity to be in the first cohort of the Sephora Accelerator program. It was amazing. I learned a lot. And the end of the program is like a pitch day. And so not to investors. It was like a you got to present to the Sephora executive team and then you presented. It was like more of like a, an event. Like they were like the Sephora employee base was there. Anyways, it was super fun. I had at the time really focused on Canadian PR and had made the decision through the program that I was likely going to, because I, I've been a bootstrap founder, like I didn't have money to invest in everything, but I was like, okay, I think I'm going to reevaluate this investment and invest in USPR. But even before I did that, I was getting the pitch deck together and we had some great press. Canadian media was so great with us. And, you know, we were in Chatelaine, like I had this like pro pick in Chatelaine and because they really liked our serum and there was a picture of me. I had been in Canadian living personally. Um, there was a profile about me, even in like the Toronto Sun. And so I, we had I, we had this page of like some of our press. And I remember everybody going, but what are those places? And I was like, what? And I was like, that's Chatelaine. That's, you know, blah, 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 whatever. You know, I, I was on City Line. And it was in that moment that I realized, oh, like one, I need to focus on USPR. But when you're in Vogue, you know, Vogue permeates all mind spaces. And when you're in Al or Glamour or any of those things, you have a broader appeal. And I think in some ways, Canadians also rallied behind that too. Like they love seeing that their made in Canada brand was being loved by Oprah, that kind of stuff. I'd like to talk a bit more about the kind of like the channels there. So you, you had, had a retail partnership with the Marriott, which like Ritz Carlton, St. Regis, the W, some really, really high end, nice hotels. Why did target that partnership and you know why do you think skincare brands beauty brands should target those partnerships what, what are those ad is it like kind of a bit of a marketing and a sales angle there so that is a new from our journey that's a really new partnership uh, it's just rolling into the hotels right now and if so what I would say is, and what the program is, it's hotel amenities. So you can't go into the Ritz and go buy your favorite cleanser, but it's amenities. So if you, I think of my early days in pharma and as a, as a consumer, I discovered L'Occitane because I stayed at the Four Seasons for work. I discovered La Labo because I stayed at the Farmont. That's how I discovered those brands. And so now for me to know that somebody's going to walk in to the Ritz or the JW or the W, maybe they're on work, maybe they're there for vacation and they pick up our golden milk cleanser or we, you know, we made some skews for them. They pick up a bath salt, they pick up a makeup wipe, but they see our brand name. All of a sudden, um, they're being exposed to our brand in a way that they couldn't have. So to answer your question, it's more marketing um, than anything. It's like getting the, you know, I couldn't, in a very focused way, put those products into people's hands in a way that a hotel could. And it aligns us our, while we're at still what would be considered like an accessible prestige brand. Um, so meaning it's not so luxury that it's like only for 
you know, those that can afford it or want to indulge in it. Um, it aligns well beautifully with the hotels. It gives us like, again, a point of view and a, and a, and a mind share that's really unique. Cause when you're at a hotel, you're like, okay, sure. I'll just try this cleanser or, oh, I've never heard of this brand. I should look it up. I think there's just, there's just a lot there. You mentioned influencers earlier, and I'm just kind of curious about marketing. Like you mentioned L magazine, glamour, the hotel partnership. I just feel like there's almost unlimited angles to market your product. Mm -hmm. What would be, obviously when you're at different stages, there should be more focus or less or more broad focus. What are some things that have worked really well for you from maybe an influencer angle? Um, do you find that as a powerful channel? Is that like oversaturated right now? Or is it just about targeting the right kind of influencer and potential consumer? There? Yeah, I'm a marketer by background. And so I feel one, you know, like there's that like fundamental, they probably tell you in business school, which is like a consumer needs to see something seven times sometimes before they purchase it. Um, that's not always the case. And e-com has definitely defied that. Um, but I think you have to have multiple ways that people can touch and feel your brand because people are also different um, in the way that they act and interact. So if I think specifically of press, I think press has never specifically been sales generating. You know, it's it's only when it's actually like a really hyper-focused outlet where I can say like, oh, that happened. And I actually saw sales that day. Um, you know, typically, you know, if it's mentioned in a morning show or if it's been in vogue, we don't see that direct correlation. But I, from a validation standpoint, from a signaling standpoint, uh, we then go and, you know, on our email newsletter and say, like, guess what? We just got featured in vogue. Guess what? You know, this cleansing oil just made O's top cleansing oils of 2023. People are like, oh, it did. You know, so it there's things that we're able to do with that kind of press. Um but they're not necessarily, you know, uh, directly related to sales. And I would say working with influencers is very similar. So there are some that I think, whether because of their hyper niche or because of their community, they do, uh, they, you know, they do convert quite quickly. But I think working with influencers, what they've created is, an opportunity, you know, when you think of like what a commercial is on TV, it's getting eyes on your brand that you consistently see. And with an influencer, what you have is a really engaged following with by someone who like, you know, their community obviously respects them for whatever reason. And it might be because of beauty, but it might be because they're a mom influencer. It might be because this is someone who um, is a yoga instructor. And so for them to be talking about our products, because it's based on Ayurveda makes sense. And so um, it's, it's, looking for many ways to get your message out and heard and that knowing that part of the cycle is is I believe we have to earn the right for the sale like we can't you know there's some people will be like I just heard of you I'm going to buy you but everybody else it's like we have to show them we have to continue to show them like we're aligning with the right people people who you believe in we're in the right places and so this product has been tested um I, I think that there I think not everything in marketing is a direct line to sales but it all contributes to it I'd like to chat a little bit about brand there. Like you mentioned, you know, with having the product in those hotels and but you still want that price point to be accessible. How much thought went into it initially and like ongoing from a brand perspective of like, this is the price point. This is like the demographic we're going after. Like, how do you really target that? I feel like that's a really hard challenge because 
you, you want to keep the product accessible enough that like a mass market could adopt it potentially, but you also want something as an edge when you're initially launching. I'm just very curious of like how you how you found that kind of sweet spot with price, demographic, uh, you know, location of where that product is sold. So price is something I thought about in, in the early days when you're starting a business, you don't always have like the most experts around you. But I knew that uh, fundamentally, if you looked at the math, so if you looked at the math on our initial, you know, our first run of products, the math was off. You know, what we were paying to create, to produce the product um, and what we were selling it for, there was likely not enough margin in there. But I knew that, you know, once we were able to get into bigger production runs, we could start to, you know, we could ensure that the math made sense, which we did. Um, and so a lot of people might have said to me in those early days, make prices higher. And I was like, no, because I, in some ways, my target market was me. It was a woman who, you know, wants great products, wants a great ritual, wants something that smells great, wants something that they can keep on their bathroom counter and feel good about it. They don't have to like hide it under the sink. Um, you know, that that appealed to them, whether in the retail establishments or in the places that they love, but wasn't so expensive that you know, I'm balancing, do I get this or do I get a blouse? Or I'm balancing, is this something I can get regularly? Or um, do I ask for this item on my birthday? That kind of thing. Um, and so it's hard because we do have, we have had consumers say to us, you know, your price point is high for what we would expect because I can walk into a drugstore and get something cheaper. But I can also tell you based on the quality of ingredients like fundamentally the quality and the purity of the ingredients that we're putting in cost a lot more they just do um and so and then you build in you know again our packaging is done in canada our production is done in canada so the wages that are associated with that it's not the same as sometimes these things being done overseas and so um uh, we had to factor all of those things in when pricing but still making it accessible so you know we have one product where I think you could still argue that the math isn't perfect um, because it costs us quite a bit um, because the ingredients are so incredible, but people love this product. And so, you know, if you know economies of scale, you know that over time you can make math work, but what you can't always make work is, is, is if somebody, you know, like when somebody loves something, they come back, but if you make it so they can't access it, they'll never try it. And so, and I mean, there's a ton of luxury brands who would say, but we're just for the elite. I just knew I didn't want that. I wanted someone like me to be able to go into a store and say, I can switch and I can go clean and I can use these ingredients that I've heard about, or maybe I'm eating or, you know, I've started incorporating turmeric into my life, into my soups. I want to be able to put it on my skin. Uh, and it's not going to stain. If I tried to do it at home, it would. Um, but I can do all of that and I can still afford it and feel good about it. What do you think about the kind of post-purchase um, uh, life cycle there? Do you have, you know... Do people follow you on social? And it's like, this is how you should use the product. Do, do you think about that from like a, a brand or a marketing perspective? Is there like that post purchase? Um, you know, is there like a community that you're trying to develop? I'm just kind of curious of like, after someone purchases the product, because they see the great brand, the packaging, the story, everything. But what about that kind of after uh, purchase? There are always things we can do to be better, but community is probably probably my first and foremost thought every single day. Um, I'm really proud of the community that we've created. And I think with the community that we've created, it's been through authenticity. It's been through sharing information. 
it's not, you know, do we sell stuff? Absolutely. Like, will we send you a sale email on Black Friday? For sure. But where I think we do really well is one of my goals is to support our customer along their journey to wellness. So it isn't just that we're following up and saying, here's how you use the hair oil, but that, you know, at least once a month, if not more, we're sending you something that's more meaningful around Ayurveda and your lifestyle and your habits that we're more supportive that way. From a post-purchase standpoint, um, you know, we're starting to be more, uh, we're starting to be more focused on how to use the product because there's some beauty junkies who are like, oh, I get what a serum is. I don't need anything else. Um, but as we start to introduce new products, um, you know, people want to know what orders to use and they love seeing people use them. One of the things that we do twice a year is a live sale. It actually uses a technology at a Montreal called LiveScale. And it's a technology where it's almost like a brand created QVC or shopping channel. It's like super low production Often I'm sitting in the office. The last one we did, I was sitting at home and my team was at my house and I'm looking into the screen and they have the ability to shop. So they're shopping. Excuse me. They have the ability to shop. So they're shopping while they're on the screen. But the, one of the things that I do that I have found and I get great feedback on is I also do my routine. So yes, people are shopping. And yes, I'm saying like, oh, okay, this is what I, why I cleanse my face. This is why we put Moringa in it because it's an anti-pollutant. But they also physically see me put my hair up in a ponytail and they watch me rub it into my eyes and they go, oh, so, okay, I can put it in my eyes. It will take my mascara off because they see me doing it. And so we can do better at doing more of that. But it is, I think, something I'm, I, I do think about is that, you know, once you engage with the brand, how do we continue to keep you engaged and how do we support you? in your journey with the products and how do we just continue to support you? What has it been like growing the business for over eight years, kind of bootstrapped? And I know you've raised some capital recently. Um, I guess so. a two-part question. It's how's that bootstrap journey been? Why did you take that approach? And why take capital now almost kind of eight years into your journey? It's funny. I still feel bootstrapped. I'm going to have to get uh, my vernacular right <laughs> um, now that we've just closed a raise. I So I started, I was still working um, in the early days. As a bootstrap founder, you have to fund the business, right? And and funding that business, you know, it's expensive to launch a business and and you need to keep putting capital in to be able to execute and try and test and retest. Not everything we did was right. And so I was still working, although I, I had like an employee at the time on, on Sahajan, like it was, it was an interesting time. And so I went fully into the business in 2019, uh, without taking on other work and, and then why change that? So, you know, it was good over the years. And I think there were times where investors would reach out and say like, are you raising, do you need capital? And I'd be like, no, thanks. Like I'll talk to you later. And I think for me in those early days, I also wanted to be able to demonstrate traction against the brand. I wanted to demonstrate and really validate my thesis, which one was Ayurveda would be this gateway to wellness and beauty, and also that people needed clinically proven products. And um, because we were one of the first clean beauty brands, indie beauty brands, to do these cosmetic clinicals, it's something that you know the Estee Lauders of the world did, but nobody else was doing. So I wanted to have demonstrated traction. Um, you know, as we grew, you know, we we had some great you know, we had, you know, some, some beautiful moments of 
of profitability. And and so you kind of wonder, like, do I need a partner? Do I need, <laughs> sorry, I apologize. My voice is really um, dry. Mm. I'll start again. So what I think I was saying, um, so we, yeah, so we, uh, where, do you, where was it? Focusing just on like, how, how do you choose that partner from a capital yes. perspective? Over the years, I had people who would reach out and say, you know, do you want investment? And I would kind of say, no, thank you, because I wanted to, I wanted to demonstrate traction. I wanted to validate my thesis. I wanted to validate that, you know, Ayurveda would be the gateway to wellness and beauty because I was, you know, in some ways, one of the earliest to the space talking about Ayurveda. I wanted to validate that clinically proven clean beauty made sense. It made sense to me. I could see the white space. Conventional beauty, like the lauders of this world, were demonstrating clinicals, but clean beauty wasn't, indie beauty wasn't. And so I wanted to create more, I wanted to create more in that asset in and of itself. And I wanted to show myself that, like, I could do this. I could do, like, we have something here and, and we're going to grow it. And then the reason for change is, you know, we had beautiful growth, we had great community, we have great products. But, you know, a few things have happened, I'd say, in the last year that created the impetus to me want to raise capital, which is one is timing. And so the market has, is really growing and exploding on Ayurveda. There are, you know, when, if I had to draw a competitive map, you know, in the early days, it would have been Sahajan, maybe a couple brands in Ayurveda uh, in India. There, there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot. Whereas now it's Incredibles we're creating this category. There's new entrants that have, you know, their different points of views. Maybe they're luxury, maybe they're mass, maybe they're, you know, just focused on hair or whatever it is. And so, you know, the category and the timing is right for us to put the gas in the tank, really grow the brand. I think timing is critical for any brand. You have to be able to seize the reins when the timing is right. Because if not, times change. And it doesn't mean that Ayurveda will go out of style. I don't think that. But I think people will, you know, brands will become leaders and and we are well poised to take that leadership role and I want to see us do it. I think that's incredibly important. I think as, a, as uh, one thing that I'm starting to learn as someone who's only just recently raised is, you know, we did, uh, we didn't do a significant raise, but we brought in some really interesting people. And even in a short period of time, like we literally had our closing dinner last night, but the number of people that said to me at the dinner, what do you need from me? How can I help you? What can I do? I mean, my friends have helped me like a ton in my life. And I've, um, you know, I've got, I've been able to create some great networks, but that's really different than having somebody who's very engaged in your success and is willing to lend in it. Sometimes just from a thoughtful standpoint, like, you know, we, I had, we had an investor who she was like, okay, make sure you were, message me in November. I'm doing all of my Christmas shopping with you. So there's like that small thing, but there's also someone that when I say, you know what, we it's time for us to do a website redesign. So now I have the cash to be able to do that. But also, you know, across your portfolio, would you be able to, to ask around and just see like, who did, who did people like, who got them a really good site, who they were happy with, who has the expertise? That's something, you know, as I told you, like in the early days, I was going on to Shopify and looking at their preferred vendor list. And so I think the access to knowledge, the access, I think this it, it enhances your speed and ability to be able to create and grow. And that's what I'm really excited about. Like, a, you know, I had an, a, an investor say to me yesterday, 
who have you typically bounced all of your ideas off of? And I was like, oh, like in my head, I was thinking the many voices in my head. But it's, um, you know, and I do talk to people, but I don't. And when I, I've always been a person, if I have a question or I don't know something, I will reach out. I'm not shy to do that. But I've never had a focus group of people where I have been like, this, this is the challenge that I'm having. And that challenge could be structural. Like, I really think it's time for us to hire a fractional CEO, a CFO, or um, I think it's, you know, I'm looking at the taxes and I want to make sure that as we grow, we're doing this. So there's like some of these like fundamental things, but also I really have this idea and this is what I want to try. It's going to cost this. Like, what do you think? And I think when you're doing that on your own and it's not that it changes because it's not my own money, but you know that you're making that decision in a vacuum. It's nice to have somebody spar that with you. It's nice to have somebody say, yeah. And you know what? I could actually bring in someone who could uh, sponsor that with you. Or I, you know, like just, or I've known this brand that did something similar. Let me get you that founder and you can grab a quick call with him or her. Like just that, I think that capacity is what I'm so excited about in the room. I really appreciate you sharing those kind of insights into why now and, and who to partner with. I'd love to jump into the quick fire round. I'd love to know what your favorite book is. And if you can't pick a favorite, maybe just something you're currently reading or, or read recently. Favorite is hard. I typically read fiction. And so, um, you know, some of my favorites, actually such a long journey. I don't know if you know that book is Canadian author, Rohinton Mystery. It's one of my favorites. Um, really, really good fiction book. But I actually just finished on Audible, which I'm not even an Audible person. Um, the Indra Nui biography, if you know her, she was the CEO of Pepsi. Anyways, incredible biography an incredibly accomplished woman. But there were moments in that where like I would be walking and I'd have to stop because I wanted to listen to the insight. It was uh, and as a uh, particularly related as a woman, I also related as she's from India, but I'm the daughter of Indian immigrants. And so there was a lot of cultural nuance that I related to. But also she talked about her, you know, her big decisions at Pepsi and her courage and just like insight. I found so helpful. I'll have to check that book out. Uh, what are you most excited about in 2023 personally and professionally? Professionally is an easy one because Sahajan is about to do so many exciting things. We have a lot of unlocks this year, the Marriott being, you know, the Marriott partnership being the first of them. And now with this equity raise under our belt, I'm just like, you know, I keep talking about it as gas in the tank. So I'm just sort of excited to, to, to put that into action. Personally, I am excited, even though I work a ton. I think what I'm excited about is it's time for me to also like just personally refocus. I often think of work as like, it's almost like if somebody's preparing for a marathon. And so I, I may have mentioned this earlier, like I was a fitness instructor when I was younger and I'm starting to like really re-engage with my fitness and my practices. And I have young children and they're getting older. And so probably the thing I'm most excited about is the two of them, like watching them live their lives and do things and and I'm very proud as an entrepreneur that while it's really hard to, to find balance with both, it also gives me the opportunity to really be present in a unique way. I love that. How do you deal with hard times? Starting a brand is hard. Staying at it for eight years, eight years plus is also challenging while being a parent. Do you have any kind of tactics? You mentioned fitness there and stuff. Is there other things that kind of help you out there? It's definitely been an emotional roller coaster because, again, when you're bootstrapped or Having come from a big organization like J&J, where you also wield a lot of power to, um, you know, being a founder and you have a supplier that says, sorry, you know, I said I would 
deliver those boxes or I, I don't want to say boxes because I don't want to put my box supplier because that's actually not true. This is a fictional story. But like, you know, I've had suppliers that will say to me, like, sorry, we bumped you because somebody else came in and took that. Um, and I've had, you know, certainly many challenges along the way. Um, I think I've had a love affair with chocolate in the last eight years. But um, I, you know, I've been really grateful for the people around me. I think as an entrepreneur, you have to have, whether you want to call it your village, your tribe, your people who, who will help you when things are tough, who will show up for you when things are tough, but will also comfort you in those days. Uh, fitness is really important. And as we move into the next year, that's also why I want to launch significantly into my fitness, because I think for your mindset, for your mental health, there's a lot you can work on in, in, I read something that said, like, you can put a lot of your challenges in perspective with like a good workout and a good sleep. Um, and I believe that to be true. And then I've really, you know, in exploring Ayurveda really deep, deepened into some of those practices. So I, I'm, I'm, Last year was a regular meditator. Now I'm starting to get back into it. And I'm not as good at quieting my mind. So I do guided sort of meditations, which I find really helpful. Journaling is incredibly helpful. I think it's about setting in place practices that keep you focused and functioning. And then I think the last piece is also giving yourself grace. We're not perfect humans. And it's okay to make mistakes. And it's okay to have a down day. And it's okay to like want to cry. Or it's okay to want to say, you know what? I'm done for the day. <laughs> I'm going to go do something that makes me happy and start back at it tomorrow. That's the last question for me. I'd just like to open up the mic to you to chat about anything Sahajan um, or just or just anything you'd, you'd want to chat about before we wrap it up. Thank you. I'm so excited to have had the platform to even share this much. I, I really appreciate the, the questions, the um yeah, the ability to just share my story. Well, it's been a lot of fun, Lisa. I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, yeah, it's been super insightful. I've learned a lot and, and, and just appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.